The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I want to let you in on a a bit of a secret, really, an embarrassing admission. Last year, I did something I should never do as a journalist. That's to drop my cloak of impartiality and get involved in a story. Jump off the box seat of history, jump onto the court and try and grab, grab the tennis racket and the balls, and actually trying to influence the outcome of a story that I'm reporting on. It's a dangerous thing for any journalist to do, and I have done it once. I don't plan to do it again but I don't apologise for doing it. Last year, I got involved to try and get an early and very hard lockdown through the government. Why? Because I was scared, like a lot of people. And I felt that there were some things I could do to try and make it happen. I was in a position to put some people together and to uh, get an argument in front of the government which would help them make a decision which would normally not be in their own interests. In the second and third week of March, when New Zealand was at that crunch point, we had to make a decision very, very quickly to do a hard lockdown. And at least initially in those first weeks of March, it didn't look like we were. Why? Because democracies are awful at making very big and fast and politically difficult changes unless there is an in-your-face emergency, like someone declares war on you, or there's a massive physical disaster like a huge earthquake or something like that. But in New Zealand, COVID-19 seemed quite remote. We'd seen the pictures about the cruise liners stuck offshore, We'd seen little comments about some Italian hospitals that were having problems and some people who were dying here and there in Britain, but it didn't seem like the end of the world, if you can all take yourself back to those first couple of weeks in March. And I was in a press conference listening to questions to Jacinda Ardern and asking a few myself about what the government would do to try and restrict contact between each other to stop the transmission of this disease. And at that point, we weren't quite sure whether or how it was being transmitted. For example, the Ministry of Health wasn't even recommending mask wearing. The idea of social distancing and shutting down big events seemed extraordinary, economically crazy. In fact, Jacinda Ardern was asked at one point whether she would uh, close the Pacifica festivals and the big band festival that was going to go on in Dunedin that third week of March. She said, no, that's not something I can do. That would be you know, potentially damaging to the economy. And remember, Labour was well behind in the polls in February, March, or at least in danger of losing the, the election, which was due in nine or 10 months' time. And business leaders were not very happy with, with the government, and the government really wanted to keep confidence of business. So the idea of shutting down the economy, when we hadn't even had any deaths or people in emergency units, why would you do that? In fact, no other government did. Britain, Italy, America all waited until they could see their 
intensive care units were overflowing. They were running out of ventilators. There were people uh, lying in corridors. That's the sort of moment of extreme crisis that voters will go, ah, yeah, okay, you, you can lock us down now. That's fine. And we were going to take the same path. I could see it. So I intervened and made sure that some people, including some of the so-called Business Knights group, the Stephen Tyndall uh, group that included academics like um, David Skegg and the Mowbray brothers and Rob Fife and the likes, that they got their message across to the government in that crucial weekend before the announcement about the lockdown. I actually didn't think it would work. But um, having the air cover on top of the Prime Minister and the government from those on the centre-right, so the National Party Act, People in Business, Business New Zealand, this group of business knights saying, yes, it's going to hurt us in business and it's going to hurt the economy, but we want you to lock down the economy to save our nanas. That this framing you see overseas of it's the economy versus health is wrong. It's the economy equals health. And as it turned out, that was right. Our economy has performed better than anyone else. And on that weekend, I jumped off the box and got involved and made some calls and did whatever I could. I'm not sure it actually made that much of a difference in the end. I think having that air cover from all sorts of people and the way New Zealand civic society pulled around and gave the Prime Minister and the government air cover to collectively make that decision to lock down was extraordinary. I still think that is an amazing achievement for New Zealand Inc. So, why am I talking about this? This week is a huge week in climate change. We heard from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that we have a climate emergency where we can't really afford to wait any longer. We actually have to take some political and economic pain to reduce emissions, agree to do this together, and do it real fast. In the next 10 or 20 years, we need to get emissions down towards carbon zero. 2050 really is the last moment to get to carbon zero for the world, and of course that's already in our legislation. And so we're doing it, although we're behind the eight ball as well. Our transport emissions are significantly higher than where they were in 1990. Our overall emissions are much higher than many others. We have some of the fastest emissions per capita growth in the world. Greta Thunberg has just called out our dairy farmers. Our methane emissions are now quite important. As it turns out, the IPCC has said in a separate chapter that the methane, which does fade away over time, is quite a potent climate warmer in the short term and more needs to be done to reduce methane. So that's very relevant to us. So why am I talking about climate change and comparing it with COVID? Well, our Prime Minister used the framing of an emergency with COVID-19 to take massive action, which most New Zealanders would have seen in non-emergency times as too much. How dare you tell me to stay in my house and not go to work and wear a mask and stop my kids going to school or stop me from going overseas or coming back. How dare you? And it was a politically difficult decision, but we did it because everyone got behind the PM and she had that air cover. Climate change is an emergency too. Yes, there are tipping points, there are feedback loops which risk, according to the IPCC, a rise in our temperature by as much at the most extreme levels to 4.7 to 5.7 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by the end of this century. Remember, there are people being born this year who will be alive in 2100, and they will have to deal with potentially four or five degrees warmer 
And that is, by most measures, impossible to live with. Not to mention, sea levels would rise 65 metres if both the ice caps melted, which at that sort of level of um, warmth you would possibly see. So we have a climate emergency, and how do I know that? Well, have a listen to this from December the 2nd last year from the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, who just six months earlier had also declared a COVID-19 emergency. This declaration is an acknowledgement of the next generation, an acknowledgement of the burden that they will carry if we do not get this right and if we do not take action now. When I visit schools, when I read children's letters, I'm often struck by how deeply personal the climate crisis is to them. We cannot underestimate a generation angst and full of anxiety over the reality of climate change for them and their generation. And Mr Speaker, it is up to us to make sure that we demonstrate there is a pathway, there is a plan for action and there is a reason for hope. For them, it is instinctual, it is tangible, it is real. It is about the country they will inherit and it's about the burden of debt they will inherit unless we make sure that we demonstrate leadership on this issue. So why haven't we seen those same actions as we saw with COVID-19? Actions that would significantly affect private business interests, the lifestyles of a lot of people. We'd have to essentially convert a lot of our motorways and roads to cycleways and get people moving into housing, which is much more friendly for the climate, much better insulated. We could have done with that this winter. And actually make a, make a difference very quickly. Why isn't that happening? Well, this week on When the Facts Change, I want to go deep into the political economy issues around dealing with climate change as an emergency, how hard it will be. So we talk to Stephen Mills from UMR, who has seen many a focus group and can tell us actually what real people on the ground who are making decisions that politicians care about, what they actually think, and sadly, they're not willing to take the pain. They say, yeah, climate change is a real thing and we should do something about it, but not me and not now, someone else later on. And we also talk to Paul Winton, who has also done some research into what New Zealanders actually think, and it's sort of shocking. 7% of us say that climate change is a major issue that we should care about. But when you scratch the surface, only about half of those people will actually do anything to change their lifestyles to reflect that concern about climate change. And most of that is recycling plastic. So we have a huge task on our hands. A lot of people, and to be a little rude, in the, you know, the woke bubble, which you know, perhaps I'm a part of and which there's a few listeners <laughs> to the spin-off podcast would say they're a part of, or no, maybe not say it, be accused of being a part of, uh, cannot understand why everyone else isn't just doing the right thing and moving on with these big changes. But actually, it's really politically tough. I also talked to Jessica Berenson-Shaw about how you could move that Overton window, so to speak, move that sensible middle where politicians like to dwell over to where we're talking about significant change, like reconfiguring motorways and roads, investing huge amounts in electric buses and electric bikes, investing large amounts in climate-friendly housing. That is going to be a tough task. It's a pity that the current government is not 
phrasing the climate emergency, framing it and looking for that air cover in the same way that it did with COVID-19, I'm not going to be the one to jump off my box seat this time around. Um, I actually think it's a tougher task than COVID-19 was. There isn't that burning platform to make voters, particularly in the centre, do too much. It's a sobering thought, but I live in hope. I thought in the second week of March we wouldn't do it. I thought democracies just don't do this sort of thing. I thought we'd fail, but we didn't. Somehow we got it through. Maybe we can do the same too with climate change. I'm Bernard Hickey. That's what we're talking about this week on When the Facts Change. They definitely have changed this week. On the Spinoff Podcast Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. Well, kia ora to Stephen Mills, who is from UMR Research. Uh, welcome in to When the Facts Change, Stephen. Kia ora. Thank you. I'm really curious, Stephen, as someone who's done an awful lot of opinion polling, focus grouping, both in New Zealand and in Australian politics, what you think voters who are likely to have some influence on an election result actually think about the sorts of climate change policies we might need to get to carbon zero by 2050? Well, it does vary a lot, and it varies between Australia and New Zealand with the different political setups. But basically, and it's a point I've been making quite a bit, is that um, if you do quantitative research, you get numbers that show people um, declare considerably high levels of concern about climate change and want governments to take more action. But when you kind of do more in-depth qualitative stuff, it's not such a bright picture. I think the ground is shifting from what I've seen, you know, over um, you know, 20 years plus of researching on the subject. You know, clearly young people's opinions have moved on this. And I think generally there's been a shift as well. But I don't think we've reached any sort of political tipping point yet. When you do focus groups, the advocates of um, climate change action often get kind of overwhelmed by kind of angrier people who don't believe it's happening or don't believe anything should be done about it. Um, you know, the dynamic tends to sort of favour the opponents rather than the supporters of action. Some people, you know, while, while they believe climate change is happening and things should be done about it, are basically unwilling to bear personal costs. Um, and, in, and in some cases, they can't. So, you know, that's, um, you know, needs to be respected. And they also argue that when, if they're doing something, it can be as little as recycling, that that was enough. Um, this is a pattern I've seen in other work like capital gains tax as well, where and a little bit on, uh, you know, kind of environmental improvements in uh, rural New Zealand, that somehow people think the government should recognise if they're making efforts and exempt them from, you know, general regulation or taxation. And um, also a pattern that sort of comes through quite strongly is that when people are confronted with hard choices like these are the facts on climate change, they go for soft options. There's a lot of support for research into animal emissions. It's just sort of magic them away. And similarly in Australia on clean coal, um, you know, that's held out as the answer rather than anything that they have to do themselves. I mean, the political reward for doing anything on climate change is well past. I mean, may, that may be shortening actually, but at the moment it's still well past you know, the span of a political career of a politician, you know, putting through something which imposes cost and inconvenience on, on voters. So how do you think our politicians could respond to this on both sides of the aisle to bring in policies that in the short term might hurt some people or all people? Uh, how, how do you get that sort of policy through in a democracy? Well, you can only do it if, you, if you're kind of prepared to wear the significant political costs, which can be as great as losing an election. Um, I mean, I think there's zero chance of bipartisan um, action in New Zealand. I think um, National Party and ACT as well, even if the National Party came on board with bipartisan 
um, support for climate change action. Act wouldn't, I don't think, in any circumstances. So you're not going to have it, and then it, you know all political risks are imposed on one party. I think that there has to be, you know, my kind of hope, and I'm, I'm not sure I'll see this, but um, that there will be a tipping point, and maybe it's going to be too late. Um, you know, where people will see the evidence is clear enough that action and sacrifice is needed. In the short term, you get it, you know, during power shortages in New Zealand, people kind of, you know, kind of uh, conserve and put pressure on those who don't, drought, war, and even COVID, where they rally around leadership and around an objective. And in that case, you know, I've always held out high hope for the Zero Carbon Act, because in that case, if you reach that tipping point, and I don't think we um, have, despite the biblical apocalyptic scenes we see of fire and floods on our televisions every night, that you've got the perfect mechanism there because it won't be able to be undermined by opposition parties and um, governments will be under serious pressure to implement its recommendations. But that does require a shift in public opinion. Otherwise, governments just have to, I guess, do the best they can do um, and, um, and be prepared to wear the risks. But if you look at the kind of risks, you know, look, look at the asymmetry on what happened with the um, clean car discount, which no one ever refers to as, of course, it's become ute gate or ute tax. Um, you know, on one side, you've got the threat to us as a species. On the other side, you've got, what, a few hundred, maybe a few thousand um, ute buyers who won't buy a near new second-hand one, which no fee applies to, and have to pay two to $3,000 on a, um, you know, 60,000-plus purchase. And the media, um, with some exceptions, there are a couple of intelligent comments by Jack Tame and Andrea Vance, but the media, pretty much as I read it, ran arrogant government not listening to salt-of-earth farmers as their frame around that. You know, that's an example of how hard it is. What could have been criticised is a very modest move, you know, too modest, much less than a lot of European countries, for encouraging the use of electric vehicles somehow became a real political problem. So tell us about how sometimes you could have an emergency framing, a bit like COVID last year, where the Prime Minister was able to effectively, you know, push through what would normally be very controversial changes to how we all get around our you know, human rights to move where we want, to not wear masks, to do all these things. Yet she managed to very quickly rally everyone together to do, you know, the most extreme lockdown in the world using that emergency framing and also having basically everyone from the other side of politics behind her, including the business community. Is there any chance that this emergency framing, and you could argue the climate change is an emergency, could be used with climate change in the same way it was with COVID? Absolutely. That's what I think I you know, was trying to say, basically, that we, we do need that tipping point where it does get into that same space where COVID was last year, perhaps not quite so much um, this year, where people do accept that that is a goal that absolutely has to be achieved, that it's a crisis, and we do need to act. But um, And I mean, I think some New Zealanders are in that frame, um, and, you know, and especially younger New Zealanders, but I don't think enough are for there not to be political risks. And I've already made the point that I think there's zero chance of bipartisan action on this at the moment. National, I think, rightly senses there's more votes in amplifying discontent from anyone affected by attempts to introduce measures to mitigate climate change in New Zealand, and they're going to pile on that side of the argument, not on the side that we should look ahead, you know, to save ourselves as a species. So just looking across the Tasman, where climate change politics seems to have dominated both parties and been responsible for four or five of the last prime ministerial changes... Why is Australian climate change politics so much more important, contested, than it has been, until now at least, here? I think it's partly events that it sort of began way back when Rudd didn't um, push forward on that carbon pollution um, 
reduction scheme and didn't get the support of the Greens, which would have seen it through and could have been an entirely different history on climate change measures in Australia if it had. So that was kind of one thing which sort of finished his leadership. And then Abbott ran kind of hysterically signing pledges in blood that there wouldn't be any kind of carbon tax. Uh, Julia Giddard, you know, forced in the last week of a campaign under media pressure and opposition pressure, said, you know, there'll be no carbon tax under a government I lead. And then there was one, um, you know, as part of the deal with the Greens to, to form a majority government. So there were kind of events like that that um, I think brought it to the forefront. And, of course, Turnbull's leadership was ruined as well the first time and to a certain extent the second time by his attempts to do something um, something appropriate on climate change. There's also the general setting that there's a lot of seats um, in Queensland and also in New South Wales uh, where, um, you know, the coal mining's the dominant industry and, you know, those seats become unwinnable if you do have, you know, advanced climate change policies, as was shown in the last election, where um, the ALP just got wiped in Queensland regional seats and also very nearly lost, um, you know, the Hunter Valley seat as well. You'd think the Australians could get the whole, you know, warming climate thing, given their um, their bushfires uh, and and the like. Is it really as brutal as you know? We've got these coal mines, they've got these jobs, and we're just not going to change. It's, it's not as um, simple as that. I think they do recognise kind of issues, but I mean, when you've got a well-paid job in front of you and the kind of economic health of the whole kind of community is dependent on you know large numbers of high-paid people spending money there. I mean, I don't think you know they believe that there are sort of jobs in a smart green economy that would replace those jobs easily and you know people are kind of fighting for that and and in a sense that's kind of understandable but the you know consequences are obvious as well it's very difficult to um to move forward and you know labor's been the alp's been seriously squeezed on that issue for quite a long time Uh, just looking back here at new zealand um if you were in the business community and you know the banks and insurers and many people in business seem to be thinking a lot more about the financial risks around climate change. You've got regulators all around the world, central banks and investors starting to say, um, you need to take this seriously. The way I look at it, the New Zealand um, landscape, you've got the current national leadership, unlike the previous one under Todd Muller, taking a quite um, short termist, populist, anti-utex proposition. Is there a case for those people around the centre-right of politics and business and, I suppose, um, civil society, if you like, to, you know, tell the national leadership to get into line? Yeah, I'd absolutely say there was a case for that. I don't think it would be successful, though. I mean, I think Judith Collins is a... um as a whatever-it-takes politician. I think a lot of people are kind of misunderstanding her actions and too as well, and, and that she's not in the moment, in my view anyway, having kind of worked on the um, other side of politics when we're in these issues. She at the moment is trying to preserve her leadership, not win the election per se as, as of now. She may pivot to do that once her leadership's secure, but at the moment she has to kind of seize every vote she possibly can to get that National Party vote in polls as high as is possible, and I think that will be her objective, and everything she does should be seen through that prism. And that probably doesn't include moderation on climate change policies. <laughs> Does that mean, though, that, that the Prime Minister, realising that she's always going to have a, a loud noise from Judith Collins and the National Party, really can't step out in the same way she did with COVID to say, I've got everyone on the centre right behind me, this is going to be tough, but we're all in this together, let's do it. Is that 
what might be holding her back? Well, I think the um, lessons from COVID were for national and, you know, for anyone looking at politics, that when you're in that position, you had that frame of, you know, kind of combined sort of national action rallying behind the behind the leadership, um, that you can't afford uh, to take a contrary view. But I just don't think that's the case with climate change at the moment, that um, it's just not in the same position that COVID was last year. Stephen Mills, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time here on When the Facts Change. No problem. After the break, we'll hear from Jess Berenson-Shaw about what you can do to convince people to do these sorts of difficult things. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Well, kia ora, and hello to Jess Berenson-Shaw from the workshop. I'm here in, in her home office in Wellington, the sun's shining through. Jess, is, you're really interesting, I think, because you look at how really tough policy decisions can be made or policy can be made that means that they actually happen as opposed to are stuck in some uh, policy document at the bottom, bottom, of, the, <laughs> bottom of the cupboard. And... With this climate change challenge we have in front of us, we have a lot of people who say climate change is a real thing and we want to do something about it, but not me and not now, some, someone else. <laughs> How do we have this um, debate conversation and actually do it? Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I read the report and just wanted to go and hide under my bed, which I think is pretty standard for most of us who, who care about this stuff. And Honestly, I think what we see in the research is that most people do care about this stuff. They do want to do something. They feel quite fatalistic about it. They feel like the people with the power and the mechanisms to do something aren't doing anything. So I think that's kind of one of the first things that I think is really important is how do we point to the people with the biggest levers in the system? And then how do we make people feel like there is 
actually some hope that those people will do something about it. And, you know, we were just talking before about I think that sometimes the conversation is directed in the wrong place. We often talk about what individuals need to do or the pain that people need to experience in order to overcome or to put in place the cuts of policies that we know will work. And we know from the latest report, you know, we need massive structural change, right, significant reprogramming of how our economy works. So what sort of things could have to be done? Who would be the winners and the losers if you did it without, you know, any sort of um, just subsidies or transition? If you just said, right, let's do it the fastest, biggest way, what would that look like? (laughs) You know, I, I actually don't think there's an option to do it that way because the reason that we're in the, the position that we're in at the moment is because we have an essentially an entire system and an economy based on extraction. Extraction of people and their resources, extraction of the resources of the planet. And that system has benefited a few people. That the, the entire system has been set up to consolidate the wealth and the power of a few people. And we don't probably have that conversation as much as we should. So I think the only way to make the kind of changes that we need to that are going to be effective is to flip that system on its head, really. And that means much more equitable and just outcomes for the rest of us. And, you know, like I I say that and it sounds big, but I think about things like, like here in Wellington, say if we were to retool our transport system, that looks like, you know, things like integrated cycleway networks, that looks like um, removal of petrol power cars, much more e-bikes, e-cargo bikes, for example, much more public transport, all of that stuff actually leads to much better experiences for most people. So I find it really interesting that we have this conversation about the pain that people have to experience when the pain that's actually experienced is what we have right now from this extractive system. Changing the system is actually going to be much more beneficial to everyone So from a kind of equity perspective, there are benefits that have to be looked at from the perspective of what are people who are currently experiencing the worst of that extractive system? What is it that people on low incomes and precarious jobs, what do they need? What does a mum who's working two jobs, say they're cleaning, she's living out in Pororoa, um, she's having to drive a car to multiple jobs, it's really expensive, her housing is a problem. What does what does she need in that system, in that retooled system? If we give her what she needs, actually the benefit is is to everybody because because you design a system around her and her needs and you have a much better system for most people, you don't have a better system for the one or two percent who are currently benefiting, and I think that's the that's the conversation I'm really interested in having. So, just thinking about the current political landscape, I'm going to throw myself into Jacinda Ardern's shoes and think about what I could do, what Mike Hosking would say, what I would say back to Mike Hosking. Uh, what is happening in the polls? You know, how am I going to get the kids? In fact, this is exactly what Judith Collins said. How am I going to get the kids to softball practice or netball practice on a bike? How is the sort of real world politics of this going to work? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I take my children to their netball practice on the back of an e-cargo bike. So, you know, there are solutions out there if you're willing, I think, is the point. Look, the the political football that's played with this is really interesting to me because the, the first thing I say is, 
how big is that group of people versus how noisy are they? So we know, for example, that those who are highly oppositional to any change in our transport infrastructure don't represent the majority of people. And the more we orientate ourselves towards that loud, noisy opposition, the more we come to think that they represent um, the majority of people. And unfortunately for people in politics, what they're not doing is making the case for their policies that matter for them. They're responding to a very surface level response of what I would call as a noisy few. We know from the research in the literature that most people, in fact, would support some of these changes, but then you get politicians backing away at the last minute when you get a loud, noisy few. I think the other thing which I really notice is that the politics of division has been used incredibly well here. So, for example, we've had a long history of dividing urban people from rural people. Now, that is not all urban and rural people. In fact, we know that a lot of urban people and rural people feel quite a sense of solidarity around the climate and around doing something on it. But it is being used by people with an anti-pro-climate um, kind of agenda to really sow division. So I think the first thing is to name that division. That's quite important. And for politicians to get a little bit braver about naming that division and to be a little bit braver about saying, hey, look, that's that's the loud, noisy few. What we know the majority of people want is this. And also taking an equity lens. Like I think about things like transport because it's a good example is what does it mean for our kids to be able to move freely and independently around their cities with a completely different transport infrastructure? Now, Politicians just need to kind of keep their eye on who is it they're doing this for, right? And keep making the case for that and arguing for their policies in a more, a much stronger kind of way and stop listening to some of the polling, which is, oh, we don't want change right now. And I would say that I think it's important to acknowledge that change is hard for people. If people see their landscape changing around them and their sitting changing around them, it can be emotionally and psychologically quite difficult to deal with. Like that comment from Judith Collins is actually just a pretty normal comment, which is, I can't see how this will happen for me right now. If, you, if you're kind of brave enough and bold enough, then you can provide that vision for people about how that happens and take them with you as you go along um, and get them there. You don't just back away the minute people say, oh, I can't see how this would work for me. Democracies, in theory, have one person, one vote, uh, but we know that substantial interests use whatever tools they have to steer their policies through and and steer down the interests of the, the masses, if you like. But on occasion, the masses overwhelm the interests of those with lots of wealth because their one vote is worth the same as someone else's yeah. one vote. Yeah. When is it successful, you know, mobilising that one vote one person to achieve the best outcome for the most people? Yeah, look, I think you kind of get to the heart of it that movement building is at the heart of this in lots of ways. And it's true about voting, which is why, for example, you see people like Tracy Abrams in, in the US doing so much work around mobilising the black vote because it's so important in the current system you know, especially in the States, is, you know, objectively racist and trying to remove black people from voting. So, you know, movement building in that space is so important. And I think we perhaps forget about the importance of of movements, but not just movements from a perspective of thinking about individuals, but thinking about how movements engage with democracy and how citizens can engage with democracy. 
what one of the fundamental kind of foundations of a strong movement is, is solidarity, really. You know, we've seen it in unions. I think unless people, unless we can find ways of both naming the division that, as you say, causes chaos and, and keeps the wealthy, you know, and the powerful doing what they get to do, unless we can name that division, it's quite hard to build solidarity. So for people to see that division and see how they're being manipulated, I think is quite important in the movement building and quite critical to rebuilding a sense of democracy and then people feeling engaged in the democratic process again. You've talked quite a bit about the issue of misinformation and the growing sense of filter bubbles, of culture wars where people yell at each other from the bubbles. They're not really reaching out to find a common solution or are really engaging. They're essentially using a particular issue as an, as an identity tool to say, I'm this and you are that. <laughs> we don't talk to each other. There is a risk here that, you know, the cyclists and the, the urban development people get all riled up in their bubble, get lots of solidarity, yell at Mike Hosking, he yells at them and nothing changes. Yeah, and and you know a lot of our work is around well how do you build uh, a shared vision for people in which you know like and again I'm talking about transport here but you know a big part of gaining support for the types of structural changes we need in transport is ensuring that people who currently don't identify as cyclists or riding a bike people who might want to do so they feel like there's room for them in a movement. So that's, I mean, in movements, we would call that sort of expanding your base if you want to take it from a kind of political perspective. And a big part of that is the narratives. You know, how do you talk about the type of um, city that you're trying to build? How do you talk about the type of world that you're trying to create post, you know, responding to climate change to allow people to come in? You know, the more, as you say, the more we polarise, the more we divide, the more that works for the wealthy and the powerful to keep the status quo. So if I wanted to have a conversation with someone who I knew was, you know, double cab ute driving, <laughs> cyclist um, running over, driver going, you know, I hate that my rates are going up and, my ta- and I want a tax cut and I don't want my money going on buses. How would you start that conversation with, with I, I honestly say I'm not sure you do. I mean, those people who we call really implacable and their opponents to an idea on the basis of ideology are actually relatively small. What you don't want is their ideas spreading to other people who kind of can be moved either way. And we talk about those people who are potentially persuadable. And on any issue, most people are. I mean, as hard as it is to believe on something like climate change, when you're somebody who really cares about climate change, there's a lot of people who sit in the middle who care about climate change but don't have a particular view on what should be done. And they get pulled in polar directions. So for me, a lot of our work is around how do you contain the ideas that incorrect false ideas into that small group and so they're not pulling people across into them and then how do you build um, you know, great stories good narratives um, so that people can hear the types of facts that we work with you know, the good science how do you into that group of people who are potentially persuadable and I mean to be honest, having conversations with those people is, is kind of draining and depressing and it kind of means you give up all hope in lots of ways so so those people in lots of ways look there are people who do that work but for us it's about 
not spending too much time engaging with them because the more you engage with those people, the more you actually are responding to their agenda. You're telling their story, right? You're you're amplifying it. You don't actually want to be telling that story. That's a that's an old story. It's a status quo story. It's a story based in fear, not based in the kind of progressive changes that actually are needed. Are there any places in the world that have grappled with this and found some solutions? I think it's it's less so places in the world and there there have been movements that have worked. I was talking to my kids the other day who were kind of getting a little bit depressed about, you know, whether change is possible and who'll make the change. And I kind of pull out of my back pocket my list of, you know, big changes that have happened in the world through this kind of approach. You know, the end of apartheid, for example, you know, it's, it's certainly, it's not perfect, but that's an example of some, massive huge structural change that was built from a movement of people who came together white and black people who came together it was driven within the black movement certainly but um, there was a lot of solidarity in that space from an economic point of view I think about the jubilee debt relief you know which was a movement that was done in 2000 to um, wipe the debt of a whole lot of um, low-income nations and and that would have been thought impossible at the time and yet there was a large movement of people in developed countries and wealthy countries to ask the World Bank to to do that so I think you know I think when these strategies are used when we think about how we can build our solidarity across groups and we think about naming division and and naming the kind of the people who are really benefiting from that um, then we do see changes are possible. Thank you Jess Berenson Shaw from the workshop wonderful to chat. I'm Bernard Hickey and you've been with When the Facts Change. Well, welcome into Paul Linton, uh, a friend of uh, When the Facts Change. Uh, regular listeners may remember we had a good old chat about um, how to reconfigure our roading network to make quick uh, change on climate change. Paul, thank you very much for joining us in the spin-off studio. Good afternoon, Bernard. Thanks for having me here. When you look at the IPCC report this week, and it's called for significant, immediate, urgent reductions in emissions, what sort of action would that require in New Zealand's context? So there's two answers to that question. The first answer is the one espoused by the Climate Change Commission. The second answer is the one espoused by the lead co-author of the IPCC's 1.5 Compliant Pathways. And unfortunately, they are different answers. So I'll talk first briefly to the Climate Change Commission's answer. They are saying that we need to drop our emissions on the order of 35-ish percent between now-ish and 2030-ish, recognising that the next decade is really critical for the climate system. If you, however, believe the science underneath the IPCC and, in fact, many of the other science actors in this space, it looks for New Zealand more like a 70, 60, 70, 80% reduction over the next decade. Either of those are material drops, um, but the one that IPCC-aligned science advocates is clearly much steeper and would see a much more radical transformation of society over the next 10 years. So what would that look like in terms of where we live, how we live, how we get... So to put some, I guess, some pictures to what that might look like, um, there's a company called ZN Energy that sells liquid fuels. Its current business model would die by 2030. 
There are companies that produce and move gas around for domestic and commercial industrial use. They would be selling half as much to 60% less product and their valuations would tank uh, over the next while. If we look into the transport space, which is really that least hard of things to move over the next decade, we would have on the order of a third of our streets would be handed over to public transport and bikes. We would be following hot on the heels of Norway and electrifying anything that we still need to drive around. And the average car that comes into the country by 2025 would look less like a Hilux and more like a Prius if it does have an engine in it. So all of those are quite possible and in fact have been demonstrated around the world in order to pursue the targets outlined by the the IPCC and they're quite different to both what we have today and also what central and local governments in general are planning for today. My impression from the IPCC report is we need to start literally tomorrow and rapidly reduce emissions In the New Zealand context, where it takes 10 years to get resource consent for any sort of railway or major project, let alone another 10 years to actually build it, it seems that the most obvious way to do it would be, as you say, reconfigure a third of those roads and then start um, introducing uh, a lot more cycling and walking and, in theory, um, new houses which are much closer to work and play and public transport and these new cycling and walking routes. Absolutely. And if we if I talk to your second point around the housing stock, the first and most important thing is stop the sprawl. Uh, so we have, and if we use the Auckland Isthmus as an example, we have ample density in Brownfield's development space to put everybody within kind of the the bit that we're already using without having to move out into otherwise fertile lands that really just invoke more travel and higher emissions. So the first thing is stop the sprawl. But on the other side of things, you're absolutely right that resource consent, for example, is a constraint. But if we use an example, uh, which is the light rail, great project, the long term, that's only going to reduce our emissions in Auckland by about 2 or 3 percent by 2030 if both of those light rails are up and going. So that's call it 10 to $15 billion, uh, takes a decade to run. It only removes one year's worth of population growth. So the key message here is we can't get there with money. This is not a money problem. And secondly, we can't get there with concrete. This is not actually a new infrastructure problem. It's an existing infrastructure problem, which brings us into the line of conversations and often awkward conversations with the populace about how we might use public space that has, for example, in the the transport example, historically been largely devoted to two-tonne blocks of steel that are used to move around 80 kilograms of meat. Speaking as one of those pieces of meat, a devil's advocate, if you like, um, in my Ferrari, Mm wondering why I have to share the road with these cyclists. How would you talk to me about uh, why it's a good idea for me to um, uh, let some of my tax money and my rates money be used to help make this change and also potentially not have that uh, free lane of some motorway or road for me to drive on? So in short, because it'll be loads better for you as a driver of your Ferrari. And if you imagine the last time you went into the Ferrari sales yard, 
they would have regaled you with pictures of freedom of some character that looks probably just like you driving down empty streets, enjoying the freedom that this new vehicle evoked. The reality of a world where we allocate a chunk of the, the, the existing road space to buses and to cycling and walking and, and other uh, e-mobility uh, means is that there will be more freedom. There's just physically more space because you strip so many of the cars off the road. So, you know, when we talk about doing that, we're not saying all of a sudden everybody needs to go out and buy a penny and a farthing and, and cars will be outlawed. But if you strip, you know, call it a quarter or a third of the vehicle kilometres, vehicles off the street, by putting people when it makes sense to cycle a kilometre to the dairy or two kilometres to school, then each of those cars that gets taken off allows a lot more people spatially for a bike or a bus. And that just means it's a much, much better experience for drivers. Just thinking about the real political task ahead, we're in a democracy where often it's hard to make change because those people who don't like change may have interests to protect uh, and are able to argue their case and win over those few key voters in the middle that in our democracy, and in many, uh, you need to uh, win over to get re-elected. The, the government does its focus grouping and hears that people like their double cab utes and don't like change. How are we going to get from where we are now to this significant change in a way that's democratically credible in our you know, democracy? So we have a really good poster child for the sort of engagement that might contribute to that, and it's what happened last year in COVID. So we had, under a COVID world, changes that were, by any measure, absolutely radical. Yet the direction that was taken by the government, not only was it backed by solid public health science and public health more generally, was also largely backed by the populace. And the reason for that one of the contributing reasons for that is that we had a really, really well-structured messaging campaign, communications engagement campaign, and we had fabulous messengers. And that's because the government chose, and it realised it needed to, to engage meaningfully with the population. Now, at the moment, the government is choosing not to do so in climate change. And if you look at this in a sort of reasonably scientifically objective basis, it looks like climate change matters quite a lot and is a, as the Americans call it, a threat multiplier for anything else you care about. Housing, poverty, domestic violence is actually a causal link between that. So you know, any topic that you care about is going to be made worse by this. So if there were one other area that the government would choose to really lean in and engage on, it would be in comms. I think if if we're to be successful at this, then organisations like Ministry of Transport, Waka Kotahi, Auckland Transport in Auckland and similar players need to be engaging massive teams that are all about the change management. And if I pick one example recently, Onihunga had a low traffic neighbourhood trial that came out. In the end, it was binned because somebody turned up with a forklift and picked the stuff that was blocking the streets up and just chucked it onto one of the booms. And it was decided that whilst that was clearly illegal, um, the uh, those that were opposing it um, won at least the battle. It's not clear whether they've won the war. And if you look at what was underneath that, um, it had become a very vitriolic battle across social media, completely unmanaged. And 
where the only contributors were the advocates who were doing this between 10 o'clock and midnight after the kids had gone to bed. So there was no funding. There was no, there was no community engagement. And organisations at the front end of this transformation, given its rate of change, and we're talking about a few years here, need to be investing meaningfully in this. And unfortunately, we've still yet seen no evidence of that. One of the interesting things about big change in democracies is that it can happen in emergencies. How could the government treat this climate situation as an emergency and bring in some of those other voices that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be in favour of, uh, you know, turning roads into walkways and cycleways? As you rightly say, it is an emergency. Unfortunately, it is a slow motion emergency. And unlike COVID, where there was a clear of present danger within days, this one doesn't trip the amygdala in a way that that did. So it doesn't drive to the the fear-based response that supported many of those actions. So we, we do have a different world there. Now, there's a, a big debate whether fear or opportunity are the drivers, and I know that fear is a personal driver of me, uh, of mine. But for many, and I think the prevailing thinking is you need to tell a story about what the upside looks like. So that's kind of the message. If you then talk to the messenger, and again, this comes back to the same thing, there needs to be a body of work to bring those people in. So, you know, if we think of, you know, some of the craziest alternatives you might think of, you know, Leighton Smith, how might we get him to be the voice of this? Now, maybe that's stretching it a little bit far. Or Angry Mike, um, how might we get him to do this? Or there are other voices that are maybe not quite at the Alan Bond end of the spectrum, but who who are the surprising voices. And to get there, we need somebody who is actually the choreographer to that comms dance. And the most obvious choreographer to all of this is the government. And they just, either the government as central government or the agencies. So, for example, the Ministry of Transport and Michael Wood would be an obvious owner for this uh, in the transport space. Yet at the moment, they're choosing not to do that. So this is um, working on the public relations political front. If we're going to have a full court press to achieve anything like what the IPCC has said this week, you'll need lots of different tactics. You know, regulation, uh, economics, uh, getting banks and insurers to do the right thing. But also there's potential legal avenues. In Europe, people have used various human rights laws to, for example, force Shell to look to reduce its emissions. And in Australia, for example, there's a bunch of people representing kids arguing that their human rights are being breached by the government there not doing enough on climate change. What are you up to with your colleagues to deal with that legal route? So there's two live legal challenges going on in New Zealand. And as you rightly say, I mean, last count that I was aware of a month or so ago, there were some 1,500 similar actions around the world. So this has become you know, a very, very meaningful act. And if we look at what happened in the Netherlands with Shell as an example, you know, that was a big shift to be challenged, but, you know, it's hard to ignore. And as I understand it, the judiciary in New Zealand are noting what is going on internationally. So the two things at play at the moment are a challenge to the Auckland RLTP, uh, where uh, Auckland Council said to Auckland Transport, uh, we would like you to reduce emissions by 64% by 2030. 
And the actors behind the RLTP, the kind of response to that, which is where you spend the $30 billion, said, we've come up with a cracking plan and that will see emissions increase by 1% by 2030. We've done our best, thank you. So, it, look, it's, it's that one there in the eyes of the lawyers who are behind this represents unlawful acts on the part of the directors who signed that off, Auckland Transport and the other actors that are behind this. So that's being challenged right now. That was launched last week. The other one of note, uh, which could have a really material impact on everything, is the judicial review of the Climate Change Commission's advice. And subsequent to that, if if James Shaw and friends adopt that advice, the judicial review of that decision, where they argue that the advice itself was unlawful and advocate it being axed and a plan which is aligned with IPCC science put in place. And that would see a roughly doubling of the emissions reductions necessary over the next decade. Now, that will play out awkwardly in parallel to the development of the decarbonisation plan that the government is currently running. But those two those two things are illustrative of what we will likely see more and more of. So I'm abreast of many that are being prepared in the background and directors of public entities like Auckland Transport, but also private entities, need to be aware that there is a increasingly engaged and increasingly well-supported advocacy community who are coming after inaction hard and fast. And uh, even in Australia, yesterday, for example, um, the Prime Minister started talking about doing a bit more um, to reduce emissions in Australia, if only because he was worried that ratings agencies might downgrade Australia's banks and therefore make it more expensive to borrow money to buy Australian houses. And that was one reason why perhaps climate change action might be needed. Oh, I mean, this 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 whole story starts to look a little bit like the garbage compactor scene in Star Wars for entities or people that are not doing anything. You know, the walls are just moving in. And in that example there, you've got the financial walls. And granted, they have been slow, but they are powerful walls. And with the advent of TCFD reporting coming out, New Zealand leading the front end of that, I think it's generally poorly understood how much exposure that's going to be. And we're going to see who's swimming with no clothes pretty quickly. Um, It will also importantly force the auditors who thus far have been completely asleep at the wheel to really challenge the holding value of the assets if there is action aligned with the Zero Carbon Act taken. And the holding value of many of these well-known assets just make no sense. And it's it's almost embarrassing um, those audit companies in action and all but silence on this. That will will no longer, it's another wall that's coming once they manage to drag their auditors out of their lattes. Paul Winton, uh, thank you very much. Uh, you've been on When the Facts Change. Really appreciate you coming into the spin-off studio. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Bernard. Paul Winton there, a climate activist and fund manager. I'd like to thank Paul, uh, also Stephen Mills, talking to us from New Plymouth, and to Jess Berenson-Shaw for letting me record our interview and another one in her back room on a lovely afternoon in Wellington. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was When the Facts Change, a podcast on the Spinoff Network brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank. And don't forget to subscribe because it's a weekly podcast and you need all these juicy weekly podcasts in the various devices that you have. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with Kiwi Bank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Thank you. 
Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.